Thank you for indulging me in that change. We're going to change it something else in the service too, I'm sure. Uh, I'd invite you though to please open your Bible to Psalm 23. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 392. Listen now to God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Lord God, our great shepherd, We pray that you would guide us not only in the time we have this day, this Lord's Day, and not only for the week ahead, but Lord, for the coming year and years to come. Lord, that we would be sheep numbered among your fold and that in in being numbered as sheep, Lord, we would follow. We would rest in Christ. And Lord, that you would be the steady hand that guides us all the days of our life. For we ask this in Jesus' name, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Amen. This morning, I have an announcement. I received word from Wendy and Gray Couliard that Wendy's mother, uh, Eleanor Kitterman, uh, passed away, died this morning, and went home uh, to heaven with Jesus Uh, early this morning, and the family uh, very much appreciates your prayer and your support. Eleanor and the family, dear saint, a wonderful, sharp sense of humor and insight and wisdom, and I was privileged to to know her uh, before she moved from her home to uh, her residence in in Frederick. And uh, if you know her. I encourage you to tell newer members who didn't have the, pl- uh, the pleasure of getting to know Eleanor some stories. And uh, the plans for her service are yet to be determined. Eleanor would have been 98 years old this coming February 12th. 98 years young. And today is day one of her eternal life. I've been by the bedside of enough people uh, in the end stages of their life, uh, nearing, nearing that their end of days here, that, to know that very often I'm asked to read one passage and one passage alone. And there are others, but in particular, the 23rd Psalm is very meaningful and, and significant to so many. Even here, even as I was reading, I know that you didn't need to look at the page to know the words, whether it was the King James Version or NIV or whatever it might be, 
23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And so I just want to take a few minutes this morning for us to, to think on, on these words and to consider their implications for our lives, for our life as a congregation, for your life personally, and for your family. No other psalm is as well-known or well-loved as the 23rd Psalm. Its allure lies in its simplicity and poetic beauty, but more than that, its extraordinary expression of experiencing God. The 23rd Psalm is an expression of, of great faith, of great relationship with God, and a great expression of deep theology, our, our understanding of knowing God. What really stands out here is, is David's experience of knowing God. The goal of all theology at its heart is to know God better. It's, it's not meant to be a, a dry study of uh, old pages in a dusty textbook. It's meant to be alive, and it's meant to be lived out by all Christians. All believers are, in a way, theologians. We are all in pursuit of knowing God and experiencing God more deeply. Turn, turn your attention to the book of Jeremiah. If you still have your, your Bible in front of you, I hope you do. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, it says this. Thus says the Lord, this is the Lord speaking, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. The Lord says that the, the greatest thing that one could boast in, that you could be proud of, that you could tell your friends about in, in a humble way, let's hope, would be what you're learning about God. I, God can I share with you what, I, what I've just experiencing? I've just come through a, a tough time and God's taught me something. Or praise God, this amazing thing's happening in the world and I see God's hand. Can we talk about it? That's what the Lord delights in. So all good theology at its heart is, is a life lived in knowing God and pursuing holiness. God is glorified by, by being known and by being obeyed, to be sure, but he's most glorified by being enjoyed. God is most glorified when you experience joy, when it is your delight in knowing him, because he says it is his delight that you know him. And certainly this is from uh, the, the passage in Jeremiah, but I also learned this from the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, who said this, quote, God made the world that he might communicate and that the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. So Christmas Eve service was about the simple, straightforward gospel message that Christianity offers Christ, that that all we need for Christmas is Christ. And I talked about the, the analogy of the radio, of the static that's out there, because we add so much religious static to what clearly is the most important thing of knowing God and delighting in God. That's what he desires for us. And that's what we see in the 23rd Psalm. 
One of the reasons I think we're, we're so attracted to the 23rd Psalm is that it touches both the mind and the heart. We, we hunger for such an authentic experience with God as we see in, in, these, in these words, in this, this great poem that touches the heart and pulls at the heartstrings and yet deep, deep theology. We want to experience what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just sitting here in church, not just on a, a special holiday or, or a special event in our life, but, but all the time, walking with the Lord. Don't we want that as believers, to experience what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that nothing else fills us but Him? We say, I want to, I want to know God in this way, it, intellectually. I want to, to feel my relationship with God growing and, and developing and maturing. I, I desire that. Those are longings that God puts on our heart, on your heart. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to, to sense something's missing. It's a good thing to, to have a sermon that, that's both convicting and encouraging, comforting and challenging. Those are all meant to be uh, in the mix. And, and in that, God is at work. So I believe our, our time this morning will be well spent just looking verse by verse at the 23rd Psalm, these very familiar words, but just to tease out some of the richer meaning, at least what I can, can pull out. So look at verse 1 with me. It starts very simply, the Lord, Yahweh, this, the personal name, the covenantal name of God. The Lord has made a covenant with Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. That is to say, I benefit from from all of his shepherd-like qualities, what does a shepherd do? Think about what a shepherd does uh, for his sheep. The Lord is, is my shepherd, caring for me, guiding me, looking out for me, as only a shepherd can. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Want for what? What kinds of things do we want for as, as sheep, as people? He says, I, I have no want with him as my shepherd. What are the things that, that you want in life, you ask for at prayer time, that, that weighs heavy in your life? Jesus helps us with this in Luke 12, verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom See, ultimately, all the things that we, we want after, oftentimes they're misdirected. They're misdirected, we've talked about, to, to idols or to, to lesser things than what God can provide for us. And ultimately, the greatest provision is the kingdom. That's what we ultimately are searching for. We don't know where to go for it. He says, little flock, fear not, for is the Father's good pleasure the Father delights, the Father takes great pleasure in providing for you the kingdom, this new way of being, this practice in this life of the life to come that Eleanor is now enjoying right now. Imagine. I shall not want for, for anything, for I have the kingdom, blessing, and the benefit of living under the protection of the shepherd. So fear not. Verse 2, he's, he writes, 
Uh, David writes, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack peace. I shall not lack restoration. These things will not lack in my life. When they do, it's a prompting for me to turn back to the shepherd. Not to go scurrying off away from the fold. Those are signs that I need to turn my attention back to the shepherd. My mother-in-law has been living here for a few months, as you know, over here off uh, observation uh, by Milestone. And she has a lovely little uh, Brittany Spaniel named Emma who can run like the wind. And so we take her off leash because there's no, no other place to take her off leash. We take her off leash right by the freeway, which is pretty, pretty fine, right? But there's a fence, thankfully. Uh, thankfully, one of the greatest gifts God gives us is the fence to fence us in to protect us for our own good. Well, Emma can run like the wind, and she won't, she won't come back even if you call to her. And so mom has one of those hunting collars with a little zapper. It's just a mild zapper, right, mom? We never turn it up more than one to catch her attention, to call her back. The Lord doesn't put a collar on his people. Like, God doesn't collar you and have to zap you to get your attention. No, he, he says, don't, don't leave my presence. Stay close to me, the shepherd. Follow my lead. And it says here that he makes him lie down in, in green pastures, a, a place of, of peace, and, and, and by still waters, a place of restoration. Imagine a sheep in Palestine, in, in the land of Israel. It's dry and dusty. The, the sun is just relentlessly beating down. But the shepherd leads his little flock to a green meadow alongside an oasis of fresh water. And the sheep just sit and relax there. And imagine, why would a sheep then leave that place where it's cool, where there's fresh water? Why would a sheep venture away? I imagine David's writing this looking over his own sheep. Maybe he sees one starting to wander off. So he has to Gently guide it back to the fold. Not zap it. Not yell at it. Just guide it back to where it needs to be. These sheep don't have to worry about uh, where their next meal is coming from because they are already lying down on their next, next meal. They're lying in the pasture. The, the food is all around them. It's, it's not something that they have to go to. They don't have to buy. They don't need to barter. They don't need to get in their car and, and drive a long distance it's right around them. It's, it's under their very feet. God wants you to experience that kind of provision and peace. This time of year, each year, we always put out a, a reading form for you to read God's Word throughout the year, and we put those out on the back table. There are also envelopes for, for offerings for you to pick up. We, we print up 50, 60 copies of them, and and we all get started on reading God's word, and so often we start to get behind a few days of trying to read the entire Bible in a year. And a few weeks go by, and then we feel a little guilty. And... But David's saying that's like a, a sheep getting up from this beautiful green grass and just walking into the desert with nothing. So we want to feed on his word. His word will restore our soul. God wants us to experience that restoration every day of life. 
Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. That, that, that peace, that shalom, peace and restoration, it, it occurs for, for believers. It always has on a seven-day cycle that begins with Sabbath. Have you honored the Sabbath this Christmas season? I've checked in with, with many of you. How is Christmas? Great, very busy. It's always the, the very great busy. And I, and I get it. I, I understand that. But that's not what life is meant to be like. It's not the life that we're called to. Great, but busy. I I would encourage you strongly to to carve out Sabbath time. There's no surprise that the Jewish custom in the third meal of of the Shabbat is to read the 23rd Psalm. That that during their own time of Sabbath, during their time of Shabbat, of, of resting, of giving this time over to the Lord, they read this psalm about resting and and being still before the Lord in green pastures. And so if you are feeling wrecked and hurried this time of year, and with New Year's coming, and in January with with New Year's resolutions that you're going to set and feel like a failure because I didn't stick to that diet, I didn't stick to that plan, turn your attention first and foremost to honoring of the Sabbath rest that he calls us to do. The second verse, part of verse 3, he says, He leads me in paths of righteousness. So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack his guidance in my life. Because why? Because if it wasn't for the shepherd, the, the sheep would settle for much less. If there was no shepherd to guide us into paths of righteousness, where would we end up as sheep? Well, literal sheep, they'd end up in the thistles and weeds. They would be drinking from stagnant, polluted pools of water. There'd be no leader. There'd be no sense of where we headed. They'd all scatter about and do their own thing. And and eventually, they would die. Too often, I'll speak for myself, too often I want the directions, not the leadership. God, just tell me where you want me to end up. Point me in the general direction and, and I'll get there. But God guides us in a very different way, doesn't he? He doesn't give us a GPS. He doesn't give us high beams. He guides us with a lamp onto our feet. And so we know what our directions are for today and for tomorrow. But we always want more. We always want to know the, the end goal. How do we get to that distant point? And he says, no, that's not the path I have for you. Follow me for today. Trust my guidance, this path of righteousness, of walking rightly before me for today. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Has anyone here walked through the valley of the shadow of death? Notice David switches from he to you. He switches the pronoun. And instead of saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I know he's with me. I know his rod and staff, they comfort me. You know, he says, I know you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why, why the switch? This is the beauty of this, of this poem. It's, it's a switch to a more intimate you. 
It's precisely at that moment when David enters the valley, he enters into crisis, that he cries out to God. That the, the truths of Scripture aren't just these prepositional truths of, I, I know God's got a plan. I, I know God's got a plan. But no, I know you are with me, Lord. You have a plan in the midst of this trial. It becomes very, very personal and painful. And here we see David maybe even remembering his own crisis. That the Lord is walking with him. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. But, but question, why would the sheep be going through such a valley in the first place? If God has this great plan that we're going to be going from here to there, from uh, fresh pastures, green pastures, and, and, and oasis of water, and couldn't we just make the quickest beeline to the next oasis and, and have some more grass and just keep going along? Why a valley? Why, why can't we just avoid the valley and just maybe go a little longer way, but a, an easier way around these hard places? Well, that's not the point. No, the point is the shepherd is leading his sheep through the valley. Your good shepherd, our good shepherd, intentionally leads us into these valley places. Why? The connection between verse 3 and 4 confirms this, I think. He leads me in paths of righteousness, which includes testing and hardship. Why? To refine my faith. The path of righteousness can only be walked if it walks also through those difficult valleys. And so through the valley through the testing, through the hardship of those valley times, our faith is perfected and strengthened. And there's a, a, a steel that gets into our spine. And we're able to help others along in the midst of their own valleys and hardships and tests. There's no way around it. We can't avoid the valleys. But the good news is God purposes them for our good and for his glory. That's what we can cling to. So when you're going through a difficult time in your life, you don't need to throw up your hands and say, I'm going to hightail it out of here. This simply cannot be God's will. Why would this be happening to me? No, you can turn to him and speak to him, child to creator, and say, Lord, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm going to trust in you to guide me through this dark time. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Easier said than done. Easier said from the pulpit this morning than lived out in the hospital room roadside you've opened that envelope with terrible news verse 5 you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows now that the the shepherd imagery gives way to the imagery of a host 
uh, hosting an extravagant banquet. So now the, the shepherd imagery is set aside, and now we come to this extravagant table, a banquet fit for a king, and we are invited. And, and all around, uh, enemies are there. And our, our fight and flight instinct kicks in, and the last thing that your body wants to do when fight or flight kicks in is to eat, right? Isn't that the last thing you want to do? Or, or, or to put, have oil put on your head, you know, maybe to doll yourself up, but experiencing God can give you such strength, even excessive joy, in the midst of the most troubling of situations. We cry out to him. We cling to this as a promise. Lord, set a table in the presence of my enemies that I could sit down with such assurance that you are for me that I could eat a meal. How? How is that possible? It's possible when the fear of God looms greater in your mind and your heart than the fear of man. It happens when the fear of God, your reverent awe and adoration, your attention to God is greater that it clouds out and leaves no room for the fear of what anyone in this world can do to you or has said about you or is taken from you. So I love the image of, of Peter being called by Jesus out on, out, uh, on, on the lake and the waves are, are rolling and he sees Jesus out on the water and the Lord calls to him and, and Peter just gets up and he just gets right out of that boat to go to Jesus. And then what happens? When his attention moves away from the Lord, to the great waves, what happens? It's then that he begins to sink. That, that's a, a, an analogy, an illustration that has stuck with me for many years. Sadly, I keep sinking. <laughs> I keep having to relearn this lesson and have to be grabbed by Jesus and, and pulled up. But that's where the joy is, that joy of release, that, that freedom that you can have can be such a powerful testimony to people around you. Beyond a, a word, a, a book that you can drop off to someone and say, this might help you in your time of need, or come hear this sermon, the, the way you live your life in the midst of your own valley, that will be the testimony, that will be the witness that will impart a great benefit to those around you. The joy of fearing God means that, that God is in your mind and your heart so powerfully that you wouldn't dare run away from him, but only run to him. Fearing God is the way you covenant, the way you come home to God, the way you come to Jesus by, by fearing God, saying there's, there's no place I'd rather be than right here, and yet, Lord, it's, it's fearful that I'm here because I see how powerful you are how magnificent you are, yet how glorious your love and your grace is that you would show it to me. That's what it means to fear God and to allow the fear of man to, to just fade away. Fearing God, you come reverently and humbly with no presumption that he owes you anything. You come trembling. And you come to know what, what Paul meant when he wrote in Philippians 2.21, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I, I, I dare not say that there have been Sunday school teachers or, or pastors or priests who've used that verse to, to intimidate people, to put fear into people. You should come and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the kind of fear. This is amazing. Can you, can you believe this? The Lord is for me. That's the kind that sends a shiver up your spine, not of being afraid, but of awe and wonder. And that's what it means to experience the presence of God. Where you say, what would I do without you, Lord? You tremble in his presence that he would be so gracious as to receive you and to forgive you for your sins. And yet again, to come and say, Lord, I messed up again. And yet I come to you again and ask for your forgiveness. And you are so gracious as to show me your mercy. Verse 6, speaking of mercy and goodness, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So all of the blessings of verses 1 to 5, they flow out of God's goodness and out of God's mercy. And these terms, goodness and mercy, they're, they're very close, in, almost identical. They refer to God's disposition to act kindly toward people. That's, that's really what goodness means, God's disposition to act kindly towards people who realize that they do not deserve grace. That's God's goodness. You realize how incredibly good you have it. That's God's goodness to you. And mercy is God's inclination to do good for us even though we deserve his wrath. That's mercy. The fact that goodness and mercy is God's principal inclination toward us, true love and passion, becomes clear when we think about this phrase, follow me, they, they, they follow me. What does he mean by that? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me or pursue me all the days of my life. The Hebrew word translated follow is a very active kind of following. It's not a nonchalant, hey, me and my shadow just kind of coming along. No, it's a pursuit. It's a pursuit. Surely goodness and mercy, God's love and passion shall pursue me all the days of my life. Psalm 139. Where can I go from you, God? Where can I flee from your presence? And the Lord says, I know you and I'm going to pursue you. He's not going to let up. God, get a hint. I'm not returning your calls. I'm not coming to your house. And yet you keep pursuing me. You won't leave me alone. Lord, it's been decades. Everyone at church has forgotten that I ever went to church, and yet you keep pursuing me. That's what it means. You might have given up on God, but he has not given up on you. You might have given up on that family member who said, I'm never coming to Christmas dinner again. But the meaning of Christmas, Jesus himself has not given up on that loved one. He's going to pursue. He's going to pester. The Spirit's going to work on you. Eventually, God will give you what you ask for. If you want to be left alone, ultimately, that's what you're going to get. Until that day, never forget, God will not give up, even if we give up on him. Ephesians 2, 76 says, In the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. It won't be until we're in heaven. You're standing in heaven, and you look around, and you see who's there. You say, wow, I knew you from youth group. You, you said you were never coming to church again. What happened? And you hear the story. Sixty years went by. I rejected God. And God kept pursuing me and grabbed hold of my heart. That will be what it means to, that, that God will show his immeasurable riches of his grace. Why? Why does, does God shepherd and provide and protect and guide and, and fill our cup to overflowing and pursue us to the ends of the earth? Why? All for his name's sake. God's motive is to display the honor of his name. It's written throughout scripture. Do a word study on that. Just don't worry about reading the Bible from cover to cover. You might fade and, and lose interest when you get into Leviticus. That's fine. Just do a word study. In every place, God says, I do this for my name's sake. That'll take you a year. There's nothing that will better display his honor, his character, his glory, his sufficiency than to overflow in mercy towards sheep-like people like you and me who enjoy him. That's why he does it. That we might experience joy and wonder and delight of knowing God. So no more false gods. Why? Because I found the Lord. No more doing things my way. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. No more weariness. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures, and I'm actually going to follow his command. No more worry. Why? Because he leads me. No more hopelessness. Why? Because he restores my soul. No more guilt. Why? Because he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. No more arrogance or pride or selfish ambition. Why? Because of his name's sake. Even in the valley, he walks me through it and guides me for an ultimate purpose. No more fear. Why? Because his presence fills my attention. No more loneliness. Why? Because he is with me. What about shame? He has prepared a place for me in the presence of my enemies. I have nothing to be ashamed of. What about disappointment? What about regret? No. No more. Because he anoints me. No more envy. No more selfishly wanting what others have. Why? Because my cup overflows. And no more doubt. Why? Because I've got my theology straight, because I go to the right church, because I've got the right... No. Because he loves me. No more homesickness, because I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One more thought. We'll conclude with this. In, in verse 4, David writes, You are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. These words were fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. There's only one occasion when 
we are told that Jesus held a staff. It's after his arrest, paraded and mocked by Pilate's soldiers, and Matthew describes the scene this way, Matthew 27, verses 28 to 30. It says the soldiers stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. The soldiers used the staff as a symbol of a royal scepter to mock and abuse Jesus. Little did they know that the very one they were beating was none other than the Messiah who will one day rule the nations with an iron scepter. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, the sheep, And Jesus is the returning Lamb of God who will reign on high. Trust in him this day and into the new year. Let's pray.